0: Well, good morning, guys. Before I start today, I did want to take a minute to talk about current events, right? As a church, we can't be afraid to talk about things that are going on in the world around us. We can't be afraid to apply God's Word to it. Even when things are controversial, even when things are divisive, Uh, We know we live in a divided nation, and with the Supreme Supreme Court ruling this week on Roe v. Wade, um, I want to take a minute to talk about why the issue of of abortion is so important to to people of faith. And I know we have people from many different backgrounds. Some people have grown up in church, some haven't. Um, And I know even in a group this size that you may have differing opinions about some of these things, but that's why I want to talk about it for just a minute. Because to me, this is not a, a, a political issue at all. It's a moral issue. And it's one that we need to to have shaped by God's Word. And I just want to share two short passages with you uh, to to make you think and to kind of challenge all of us a little bit more on why this is such an important issue. Psalm 139, um, it says this. It says, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Uh, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. There's another passage in Jeremiah chapter 1. It says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so what I think we see in these two passages, um, and I when I read these, you see that God knows us, that we are created in the image of God, that we are designed by our creator God and 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 before we're even born, He knows who we are. This is a big deal to me, and I And and I'm proud that the court has kind of taken a bold stance for the human rights of the unborn because I think all people who are made in the image of God are worthy of life. And, you know, I think that's also why this is such a divisive uh, issue in our country because if you believe that unborn babies are truly people made in the image of God, then it's really hard to find middle ground, right? It really is hard when you start thinking about innocent lives being taken. And and so I also know that statistics show by the age of 45 that in our country it's one in four women have experienced um, and have had an abortion. And uh, over the years, it's uh, since 1973, and honestly my entire life, because I was born in 73, uh, abortion has been legal. Um, And that means 64 million babies were never given the chance to be born. And I know there's some complex issues when you start talking about uh, the the saving the life of the mother and health issues and rape and incest, but those are issues that we can still talk about and come up with solutions for, but the vast majority of abortions are for economic reasons, uh, for family planning reasons, for convenience, and that just breaks my heart. And I read this yesterday from a pastor in Raleigh. He, 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 um, he had a blog post, and I wanted to share it with you. And he said this. He said, I pray we will have the courage and compassion for the road ahead. I pray that the people of Christ will join with the incredible work of pregnancy support services all throughout this country. I pray that the people of Christ will take up the painful and beautiful work of fostering and adopting, saying yes to children who have only known society's nose." I pray that the people of Christ will continue loving women in crisis, drawing them in rather than casting them out. I pray that the people of Christ will continue defending the vulnerable wherever they live and not grow weary in their efforts. I pray that the people of Christ will be what we have always been called to be, the hands and feet of Jesus. Let us love those in crisis. Let us speak the truth, even when it's unpopular. Let us pray and labor and believe God for his kingdom to come, not someday in the future, but here now. May it be in our community as it is in heaven. And I pray all of this, and I plead with you to join me, not because of anything that comes from Washington, My hope, now as always, comes from a small hill outside of Jerusalem. I have an unswerving hope, and it is in the unshakable power of Jesus Christ. On Calvary, he became weak and vulnerable and broken for me. As he laid down his life to rescue us, we lay down our very lives to bring that rescue to others. To the unborn, by offering them protection when they are vulnerable. To women considering abortion, by telling them that there is hope in Jesus, that they can choose life, and we are here to help. To those who have had abortion as a part of their story, that Jesus came to forgive us and make all things new. And to our Republican and Democratic neighbors, that we can disagree about many things, but we can stand united in our commitment to protect the weak. So I wanted to share that with you guys, because I know this is, this is an issue that I think we have to, 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 we can't be afraid to talk about things. And we can't be afraid to kind of dig in and, and see why things are important. And um, in Virginia, the, and all Roe v. Wade has done now, uh, overturning that has brought it back to the state level. And in Virginia, not many things are going to change. And we need to continue to pray and work and, and, and do everything we can to protect those to be a voice for the voiceless. And so I I just want to share that and give this invitation. If anybody wants to talk, go deeper, we would love to talk with you, pray with you, help you. Uh, But as a church, we're going to continue to support life. We're going to continue to support our local pregnancy center. We're going to continue to do everything we can to promote adoption and fostering. We're going to do everything we can to make it uh, where, uh, you know, women are loved, babies are loved, and we can do everything we can to share the love of Christ. So I just wanted to share that uh, just because I think we've got to talk about those things. So uh, with that being said, um, we get to continue in our sermon series today. And we've been talking about the life of David. Now, when we originally planned this sermon series, um, it was only going to be six weeks. And we started looking at how things landed. And I realized that on Father's Day, the message was going to be about... I wasn't going to be here, and the message was going to be on David and Bathsheba. Not always the best Father's Day message to talk about Bathsheba on Father's Day. So we went back. We added a weekend and said, okay, we're going to extend the series a little bit. Um, I, I didn't want to throw that on the guys while I was gone. Um, and so we added. And then when I got into the message this week, um, my first draft of this message, I started looking at it and looking at how long it was. And I figured out it was about 70 minutes long, which is a little long for church on Sunday morning for preaching. Y'all would probably be throwing things at me. So I've added another week, and I've split this into part one and part two, and you'll see why here in, in a few minutes. Um, but this is this is really, when we start looking at the different aspects of David's life, you know, he was a shepherd, he was a warrior, he was a, a friend, he was uh, a, the king, and we've looked at all these different aspects. Today we're going to look at one of the defining moments of his life, and it's when David was really... Uh, He he was a sinner. And really, the the reason this is so important, it comes down to how will he respond? And that's why we've split it up into two weeks. Today, we get to look at what led him to the sin. Next week, we're going to look at how he he, he found forgiveness and freedom from that sin. Um, Today, though, we want to kind of look at this this whole problem of, of sin. Now, the most dangerous words that you can ever say are that could never happen to me. That can never happen to me. I, I don't know about you, but I know I've, I've looked at things in the news and I've looked at things that have happened and I thought, oh, that, that's, that's, that would never happen to me. Can I just remind you of what Proverbs says in, in chapter 16, verse 18? It says, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. We've got to be careful. Because I will I, what, what we see is that sometimes your greatest mistakes happen right after your greatest victories. Your greatest failures happen right when everything is going great and you think you you're, 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 you 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 and the reason is, but it's because of pride, because when things are going good, we think it's because of what we've accomplished and we forget about God. We kind of push God to the, uh, the, the side a little bit. And, and so scriptures are filled with people who have met defeat, not because of incompetence, but because of arrogance. Pride is something that every single one of us struggle with. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when, when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Uh, according to the early Christian fathers, pride is the essential vice. It's the utmost evil. It's the uh, it's the complete anti-God state of mind. Every other sin flows from pride. That's how serious pride is. Pride causes us to assess our lives by our accomplishments rather than by our God-given identity. Uh, Romans 12, we even see this. It says, because of the privilege and authority that God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given, given us. So let me ask you, do you think you could reach a point in your life right, where you plotted someone else's murder?" Do you think it could ever get so bad in your life? You're like, well, I'm going to plot that someone else would die. And you're like, that could never happen to me. Can I just tell you that in 2 Samuel 11, we start with David. He loves God. He's a king who's honored God. He's brought peace to his people. He's brought unity to his nation. He has been blessed. And just 13 verses later, we see him arranging a murder. And so I know you're here and you're like, but that's, that's kind of, see, that's not me. Sin will take you places you don't want to go. And I'm just telling you today, we have got to be careful because we see a progression here that goes really fast. He didn't decide to, to murder Uriah and just like, oh, you know. No, we see a progression happen and it is scary how fast this sin takes over. And so this is kind of a warning to all of us, right? Uh, It's a warning to all of us of what can happen when we take our eyes off God, when we get prideful, when we think it's all about us. And so today what I want to do, I want to give you four steps that lead to sin and death. Four steps that will take you where you don't want to go, where you don't want to end up. And so today is the cautionary tale, um, and, and I think it's important that we talk about this. Here's the first step that will lead us to sin and death. It's when we neglect our duty. It's when we neglect what we're supposed to do, when we don't do what God has called us to do. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now the story of David's uh, moral failure begins right here. And the scary thing is the whole process, it starts with nothing. David didn't make an intentional step towards evil. What did he do? He neglected his duty as the king to lead the army. Step one involves doing nothing. That's what's scary here. All right. It's not a random detail that, that David had sent Joab. And Joab, if you keep reading through the story, Joab is a dude you don't want to mess with. All right? Joab, as you read, the, I mean, Joab, he is all about power. He, he sent Joab and the army out to battle. But where was David at the time when kings go out to battle? David was at home taking a vacation. David had become complacent, had become complacent. He had become, uh, you know, he he had become privileged and entitled to think that, hey, I don't have to do uh, really this stuff. My men can do it for me. I can stay here and live the high life. And, And I just want to tell you, we weren't created to do nothing. We were created to have a purpose and a mission in life. God has given us a passion and courage to live life for him. And and, and David wouldn't have found himself in a place of temptation if he had been living responsibly. So life at this time, it's actually pretty good for David, right? The kingdom is established. Everyone loves him. Uh, You know, we look at this, and if you read 2 Samuel chapter 10, if you back up a chapter, you'll see that David had just won a whole bunch of battles. Uh, And so... He was living the blessed life. And so it, it, may, it may surprise you a little bit that his failure comes in a, in, a, in a time of blessing. But it makes sense, right? Because when things are going good, we assume it's all because of what we've done. We assume it's because of our effort. So God gets pushed to the side. And I think that's the danger here that we see. He, he, he's, not, he's neglecting his duty because he, he just thinks, hey, I've already done everything I'm supposed to do. Things are going great. And so I'm just going to hang back and do nothing. I don't have to go to the battle. I'm a king. I can relax. I can enjoy what I've accomplished. And feeling entitled is a sure step to forgetting God's blessing on your life. And that's where we find David. So that's step one. Here's step two. Step two is allowing lust to control our thoughts. Allowing lust to take over. And I'll just tell you up front, right, it's not just a sexual lust. It could be a lust for anything. It could be that desire that we see, we want, we've got to have what we don't have. In verse 2 and 3, it says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of the bed. He was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, to understand this, the city of David is built on a hillside, um, and so David's palace at that time was the highest point uh, in the city. So he was on the, the roof of his palace, and he could literally see the entire uh, the entire city below him. It kind of rolls out underneath uh, on that hillside there. Uh, it's below where the Temple Mount is today and then the city of David kind of It's pretty steep too. So you can imagine this. He's on his roof. He has this vantage point. He can see everything. And he literally saw everything here. And David is wandering around on his roof. He's looking at one roof after another. This is, this is the ancient equivalent, right? Of, of of kind of late night browsing on the internet. It's a, it's a, it's the it's the modern equivalent of of kind of scrolling through video after video. He's looking around and he something caught his attention. He sees it and the Bible doesn't very often say like very beautiful, but that's what it says here. And that translation it says a woman of unusual beauty. I mean, it, it's just saying she was really beautiful, and he found himself in a place where he. Could be tempted, And I want to tell you this, and, and, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but it's far easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. Now, I'm, don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm, we've got to learn to say no. We've got to learn to flee from temptation when it happens. But the world is constantly tempting us so much that we don't need to give the devil any help. We don't need to actively work to put ourselves in a situation where we can be tempted. And that's what David has done here. Now, it's interesting. We have been out at some, uh, out west, we were looking at some waterfalls and some of these amazing trails and there's one waterfall we got at and I got really nervous because Jennifer walks right up to the waterfall and I'm like, whoa, don't get that close. And she's like, oh, it's fine. And I'm like, I know you. Sometimes you have trouble standing up on flat ground. I'm worried when you're standing on the edge of a waterfall looking over. And she doesn't like heights. And so I'm like grabbing her and like, honey, you need to get back. And she's like, well, it's all right. And I'm like, no, it's not all right. You need, to... and I, I, I should have put a picture. I've got a picture. I went down below and took a picture of you standing there. And she's like, usually I, she's the one that scared her heights. I'm like, it, it just, I was like, don't get on the edge. Now, the same thing is true in life. Why do we want to get so close to sin? We're like, hey, look, I'm not sinning, but I'm here on the edge where all it takes is just someone to, to barely push us and fall off the edge. But yet that's how we live so often. And so many people do that. They're like, hey, I can. we put ourselves in a place of temptation where all it takes is a little push. All it takes is a little distraction, and we find ourselves falling. I think that's what happened to David here. He didn't wake up that morning and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to just ruin my life today. What did he do? He got on the edge. And in a moment of weakness, he made that choice. He allowed lust to control his thoughts. A lot of people see how close they can get to sin. They think temptation is not bad. I've heard it said, hey, I can look as long as I don't touch. That's stupid. That's stupid. What does Jesus say about that in Matthew five? You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is guys, we can't put ourselves in that place of temptation time after time and and, and expect that, that eventually we won't fall. And I feel like David did that in this situation. Um, Now, I'll be honest, I don't know David's motives. I don't know why he went on that roof. I don't know if he went expecting to see her, but he did see her. And instead of looking away, he did a double take. He didn't flee temptation. He saw it and he started lusting for what he didn't have. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. In this moment, God is quite unreal to us. And Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. The lust thus arouses the mind and the will and the deepest darkness. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. And therefore the Bible teaches that in times of temptation to our flesh, there is one command to flee. Flee youthful lust, flee worldly temptation. If you are feeling under pressure and on the verge of something, an emotion is welling up within you. What does the Bible say? To run. No human being has within them the strength to resist such overpowering emotions. And it's interesting what he says there. the, The devil doesn't give us a hatred of God. He gives us a forgetfulness of God. So in that moment of temptation, it's like we don't even think about God. We push God to the side. We don't think about the consequences. We don't think about what's going to happen. All we think about is what we see. And that's what happens here. And so let me ask you, right, uh, you know, where do your eyes wander? What is that that's, that's trying to get your attention? Is it pornography? Is it unrealistic books and movies that make you discontent? Is it just other people because you're unhappy in your marriage and and you see them and you just start fantasizing and think, this is serious. We've got to be careful. David's sin, and I want you to understand, his sin was not that he saw Bathsheba. His sin was that he kept on looking. His sin was that he allowed it to, he didn't turn away. He allowed it uh, to continue in his mind and it took him from that temptation to lust to sin. You see the progression that happened here. Um, and, and that's what we see in our world today. And, and, I, and, I, and I, we're talking about sexual sin here, but it could be other things. It may, it may be that new car, that new job, that new house. Uh, I've heard it said before that HGTV is porn for homeowners, right? <laughs> because it gives you an unrealistic depiction of something that you'll never have. It's what pornography is. An unrealistic depiction of something you'll never have, okay? This is, this is, this is, we see this. We live in a society that tells us you'll be happy if you can just get this. You'll be happy if you can just have a little more, something different. And so we're fighting that temptation all the way. Um, I, I love this. And one pastor said this. He said, The way to successfully resist the enticements of this world, it isn't merely to have a strong will to say no. It's to be busy with a higher purpose. For many people, their lives are so empty, so pointless, so devoid of something more that, in the, excite, that the excitement of sex promises a fulfillment that they desperately crave. It's not always that sin is incredibly alluring. It's often that we are so unbelievably bored. Uh, I, I, the, the whole thought here, right, is if we're doing what God has called us to do, then we don't have time for all this other stuff, for this lust, for this enticement, for this sin. And so I, I want to challenge us a little bit. That's why the Bible tells us that we can't love the world and, and we can't love God at the same time. First John 2.15 says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world you do not have the love of the Father in you. And so I want to challenge us a little bit. We replace the temptation with something better that's from God. That's the way to overcome. We flee. We get away from it when we replace it with something better. But David didn't do that. That leads us to step three. Step three is when we give in to the temptation. And that's what we see in this story. David, he saw, he inquired, he started thinking, And then what happens next? Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. And later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Things got bad in a hurry here. He didn't flee temptation. He saw it. He longed for what he saw. He took it. He gave in to the temptation. He acted on his lust. And I'll, I'll just kind of stop and give you a side note. I, I read some some commentaries on this and that said both David and Bathsheba was guilty. She shouldn't have been bathing on her roof or on a roof. It was her problem. She wanted this. I think that's hogwash. David was the king. He was responsible for that sin. And in our society, we like to blame the victim sometimes. She was the victim here, right? She, she had no choice. She could not tell David, no, I'm afraid I don't know. She, it was not her problem. It was his problem. This weight of the, the weight of the sin is on David because he is the one that gave in to temptation. Uh, another thing I read said this, while sin starts off with the excitement and endless possibility, it always leads to the same place. Brokenness, agony, disappointment, and despair. And what is true of sin is gen- and what is true of sin generally is especially true of sexual sin. Sexual sin is so powerful, so destructive, and yet so easy to access that it can bring the strongest believer to utter ruin. I- I- I've heard this quote for years and years, and I was trying to find out who it was attributed to. And maybe you've heard it. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Have you heard that? It's interesting, when you search that, the, 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 the quote comes up with, uh, the most often, uh, is Ravi Zacharias. I've seen that, if you know, you probably, was kind of a famous apologetist and, he, you know, Christian leader. But after his death, it's come out now, all the sexual sin that he was hiding. And it's kind of ironic to me that the quote that is attributed to him most often he was battling the same thing. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Um, but, but yet we still say, that can never happen to me. That never happened to me. That, that's, I understand it. Some people are weak, under, but that can never happen to me. Do you understand how quickly this progression happens? Do you understand why it's so important to keep our eyes on Jesus? Do you understand why it's so important to have accountability in our life and and to to, to have a purpose in our life? Uh, I, I don't buy that it could not happen to anybody. It can happen to anyone if you don't learn from David. He neglected his duty. He allowed lust to control his thoughts. He gave into temptation. And finally, the fourth thing, he hid his sin. When we hide our sin, We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Uh, This is classic politics and power. This is, I mean, this is like a straight out of Washington, DC story right here. That's what pride does to you. It makes you feel like you're not accountable to anyone. You can do anything and that there are no consequences for your actions. That's why so many leaders fall. It's pride, it's power, it's politics. 2 Samuel uh, 11, verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. He told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away so long? Okay, I'll stop right there for a minute. What's David trying to do? He's trying to set this up to look like Uriah was the father. He said it's a scheme. He's scheming here. He's like, okay, maybe I can get him. And, And look what Uriah said. In verse 11, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. That's where David should be as well. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. What we see here is Uriah is more righteous than David. Uriah has more integrity than David does. And so David has to come up with another plan. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So he stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. Okay, he's not going to do it on his own volition. Let's get him drunk. Then let's send him home and see if he'll do it. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife again. He slept at the palace entrance with with the king's guard. David is so, I mean, this is just... Again, classic politics, power, scheming. He's trying to cover his tracks. This is a far cry from the last chapter when we saw a man after God's own heart. Can I just tell you, there is no such thing as a secret sin. No such thing as a secret sin. You can scheme, you can hide, you can can do that for a while, but eventually it's going to be brought to light. So let me ask you, what is it that you're trying to hide? What what is the toll that it's taking on you? What is it that you're struggling with and and you're scheming and hiding and and covering it up, hoping that no one's going to find out? I want to challenge us a little bit to to, to rise above that, to bring those secret sins to light, to find forgiveness and freedom from that. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week. But in this story we see the tragic ending verse 14 so the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab gave it to Uriah to deliver Uriah has to deliver his own death sentence here the letter instructed Joab station Uriah on the front lines when the battle is fiercest then pull back so that he will be killed Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the sea wall where he knew the army's strongest men were fighting And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. What's terrible here is it doesn't just affect Uriah, it affects other innocent people as well. And that's what sin always does. It affects all those people around the one that is scheming and hiding and running. What started as looking out as as a woman bathing turned into lust. It turned into adultery, turned into a scheme to cover up his sin, and eventually led to murder. James says it this way, and remember when you are being tempted, don't say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. This, I mean, that's, what, that's, a, that's, a, that's how you summarize the whole story of David and Bathsheba. It leads to death. It drags us away. And perhaps the saddest footnote to David's story is found in verse 27. And it says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And then when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. She became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. David. It may seem to everyone else that David had covered this up, but if you go back and read the story, they, people knew what was going on. David had sent messengers. Right? People can do math. They can figure out what happened. They knew what David had done. And and maybe the only real difference between David and us are the consequences for what happened. Uh, maybe maybe that's you know maybe the only difference is that that. Maybe sin did not take us quite as far as it did David. But I'm here to tell you that any one of us has this lurking within us that we have got to be aware of. We've got to be aware of the power of sin and the consequences of sin. I read this too. It said, It might not be murder, but sin can take you down paths you would have never dreamed of walking. Nobody decides one day to have an affair. Nobody decides one day to steal from their company. But if you neglect your duty, if you indulge your eyes, if you indulge your fantasies, if you fail to flee temptation, then that's going to be where you end up. I would never do that, you may be thinking, but please don't think you're better than David. Remember that this is God's anointed king, the man after God's own heart, the writer of the great Psalms of faith, the one to whom God spoke directly. He was a better man than you, and yet he fell catastrophically. David didn't think of himself as a potential murderer. He didn't wake up at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11 with murder on his mind. It was a thousand miles from his thoughts, yet murder is where he ended up. He didn't get there in one step, but it only took four steps. I'm telling this, guys, we have to be aware of this. Now, I said there's two parts to this message. Um, and you're probably saying good because I'm only halfway done. All right. Um, and next week, we're going to talk about finding the, the steps to, f- to forgiveness, to freedom. And thankfully, the story, there are some consequences here. Things don't go well. David has to deal with the consequences of his actions for the rest of his life. Um, But what we see is that unlike Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, he turned away from God. We see David turn back to God. And there's a a, a model here for us and how we can, how how, when we're confronted with our sin, how we respond. And so I just want to tell you today that no one is perfect, but we can find forgiveness. And there's a verse that I've shared a lot over the years, 1 John 1, 9. One of my favorite verses, because of the promise we have. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. What a promise from God. And so you may not be a murderer, but you may have had lust in your heart. You may not have killed someone, but maybe you have had hatred for someone that has done something to you. And I'm telling you this because if we don't confess those things, if we don't bring them out to the light, they're going to continue leading us down a path that we don't want to go. And so this morning, my challenge to you is, will you find forgiveness and freedom in Jesus? Will you acknowledge that you're capable of Uh, much more sin than you ever realize. And it's only by sticking close to Jesus. It's only by keeping our eyes on him. It's only by walking with him that we, that keeps us from doing what we know we shouldn't do. And so I want to challenge all of us today. Would we be people that are holy, that are set apart, that are focused on following God, that we aren't allowing the things of this world to entice us and, and drag us away and pull us away from God. And we are in a battle. Day in and day out. And don't even, don't even get me talking about social media after this last few weeks. over Everything I've seen on there. It, we're in a battle, guys. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. Um, and, and so today, that's what I want you to think about as we close in prayer and the praise team comes back up. Let's pray, everybody. Heavenly Father, as we read this story, of this tragic story of David and Bathsheba. May it remind us of our own weakness, of our own flesh, of our own struggle uh, to follow you. May it help remind us that we've got to keep focused on Jesus and what it means to follow him in every area of our life. That, there, that, that when sin is hidden, that when we try to hide from you, and we can go all the way back to Genesis to see how that works, Lord, I pray that we will understand that we cannot hide from you. There is no such thing as a secret sin, Lord, before you. So today, Lord, we, we examine ourselves. We examine our hearts. We, we open up our hearts and we open up to you. And we, we ask that you forgive us of our sins where we have fallen short. We, we ask that you help us see that we can find forgiveness and freedom in Jesus by confessing our sin, by returning from our sin and turning back to you. And Lord, we know that the most important decision that we'll ever make in this life, the most important choice is when we turn from our sin and we put our faith and trust in Jesus to save us. That's why Jesus went to the cross for us, to take our sin upon himself. And in exchange, we receive forgiveness, healing, wholeness, purpose, and meaning. Lord, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful for this church that we can talk about this world we live in unapologetically. We can learn what it means to follow you. Lord, we thank you for today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.